Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, Whitey Bulger's defense team got itself a four-month reprieve yesterday as Judge Richard Stearns granted them a four-month delay in Bulger's trial, which was, as you'll remember, scheduled to begin in November. But what was more interesting is Bulger's lawyer, J.W. Carney, he tipped his hand, revealing that what may be Whitey's defense, that he's immune from prosecution because of the agreement he made with the FBI decades ago that would protect him from prosecution for any crimes he committed during the time he was an informant for the FBI. Presumably, that would include the 19 murders he's charged up with. Well, anyway, the government, is my guess, is going to beg to differ with that. Joining me here in the studio is Don Stern. He's the senior counsel in the litigation department at Cooley LLP, but he was also the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts from 1993 to 2001 and oversaw the indictments of James Whitey Bolger and Stephen the Rifleman Fleming. Welcome, Don. Thank you. So... He is claiming, essentially, that he has immunity because that's the deal he made with the government all those many years ago. It's a variation of what was tried unsuccessfully by Steve Flemmy probably well over a decade ago. Uh, You may remember, uh, Emily, that Steve Flemmy made the allegation uh, which led to extensive hearings before Judge Wolf. I think the hearings went on for eight or nine months. And um, the the claim was that he had been authorized and permitted by the FBI – to commit any crime. He actually said, you know, you can do whatever you want as, you don't, as long as you don't clip anybody. Well, of course, you know, he did far more than that and he's, he's already admitted and pled guilty to far more than that. Um, but Judge Wolf made a, uh, really didn't rule on that defense, but that, that issue went to the First Circuit. And the First Circuit actually rendered a decision, which I think is instructive to keep in mind here. What the First Circuit said is that an FBI agent lacks the authority to give immunity. Mm. You can only get immunity in one of two ways. Either you go to a judge and you get what's called court-ordered immunity, or in some cases, the prosecutors can provide immunity. Now, that's what, what Jay Carney is doing here is, is therefore a variation of what was tried unsuccessfully well, with Fleming, because here he's saying that the prosecutors... It's a little unclear what he's saying, but uh, reading between the lines, I think he's saying that the prosecutors knew about the criminal activity of Bulger and de facto essentially gave him immunity. Okay, well, J.W. Harney is saying that Bulger had some kind of a different deal than whatever Fleming had. And and what if what if Carney can prove that that's the kind of deal he had with the FBI? You're saying it still won't hold up. Well, according to the First Circuit, that that, that won't hold it. I think I think what what Jay is is doing, at least the as I read the papers, is he, he's saying that there was a deal. Uh, entered into with Bulger by, quote, an agent of the Department of Justice. I think that probably means an FBI agent. Probably John Connolly. Probably John Connolly in the 70s. And then he's pointing to the fact that there was a period of some 20 years after that where the Department of Justice prosecutors failed to bring an indictment against him and that that essentially ratified the deal that was previously entered into by by John Connolly. But, you know, it it would be – it would be unprecedented, even if there was such a deal. And uh, you know, I don't think that they'll be able to prove that there was such a deal. But even if there was such a deal, to if you will, give a license to kill mm-hmm. prospectively. Immunity is typically given when it's given at all for crimes that have already happened. I think, as you'll remember, I, I did an interview with John Connolly in 1998. Right after he had been indicted, before he went to trial, he came on Greater Boston. And in the course of the conversation, I'm going to play this clip for you, but it's, the first part is a little bit hard to hear. One of the questions I asked him was, did you ever ask Whitey Bulger whether he killed anybody? Here's the answer. Did you ever ask him if they killed anybody? Well, why would I do that? He was a source. The top echelon criminal informant program was geared towards developing top echelon mobsters, primarily mafia members. Who, have, who, by definition, have all killed at least once. That's former FBI agent John Connolly saying, essentially, that the Boston Bureau of the FBI, anyway, turned a blind eye to any crime that Whitey Bulger and his gang committed, including murder. He never asked him. He says he never wanted to know because he essentially, not, my word, not yours, given him immunity. Well, that was, you know, it's been shown that that was a corrupt relationship between John Connolly and and Bulger and Flemmy. And I'm not here to defend um, the the past in terms of failings by uh, at, at probably at a, at a supervisory level by the FBI and how 
two top-level informants, Bulger and Flemmy, were monitored during that period of time. However, whatever happened between the FBI and Bulger, in my view, does not provide a defense to 19 murders. Mm-hmm. So Judge Richard Stearns, who's the one who granted the four-month uh, stay, essentially, um, he served as the chief of the criminal division of the United States Attorney's Office in Boston during part of Bulger's reign as a mob boss. And Carney is cl- is claiming that Stearns knew or he thinks he knew about the relationship that Bulger had with the FBI. Therefore, he should be off the trial. He should recuse himself. And, you know, Carney asked yesterday that uh, somebody else be assigned. Is is there a conflict there? Well, you know, the, the recusal motions have sort of two components. One is what, what did a judge actually do? What does a judge actually know? And I don't really have an opinion about that because I don't know what Judge Stearns knew and what how involved he was personally. Would it matter if he knew? Well, I think if he was in, if he was personally involved in some of the events which are the basis for the prosecution, it could conceivably. But again, this all goes to whether this is a defense or not a defense. I mean, there's not going to be any evidence about what Judge Stearns knew or didn't know when the government tries to prove 19 murders. That's going to be irrelevant. They're going to present facts as to what happened. What the you know? So that's that's that that you know what that case those cases consist of. I, I think that. Probably Judge Stearns is going to have to address the question of even if everything that Jay Carney is alleging, even if all of that is true, what's the legal significance of that? Does it matter? Well, Uh, wouldn't it matter if Jay Carney wanted to call Judge Stearns as a witness? Well, you you can't – a defense lawyer can't simply say I want to call Judge X as a witness. It's got to be for some point Mm – that's legally important and legally relevant to the case. If a defense lawyer says, Judge, I want to call you as a witness because I want to find out what you had for dinner last night, the judge would say, interesting, but that doesn't matter to the case. Now, I'm not comparing that to the suggestion here uh, in, in the papers that Jay Carney has filed, but the threshold question is, does that matter? Now, there's a second component to recusal, and that is the public perception, which is, you know, does it give the appearance to the public that because of what Judge Stearns did in his prior life as a, as a prosecutor, will the, will, the co- will the public have confidence in his decision? He's an extremely well-regarded, well-respected judge, and, and I'm frankly, uh, I, I think I'll leave to his own judgment as to how he wants to handle that. Mm. I think he'll, he'll do the right thing, whichever he, whatever he thinks is the right thing. What's your experience on granting of these delays in trial? I mean, is this case really so much more complicated than other murder cases or other mafia cases or other on-the-lamb cases? I mean, yeah, it's old, It's an old case, but, I mean, they, they must have been building these files for years. I mean... Well, you know, the government, it sort of depends on where, where you sit uh, because the government wants to present this as a, quote, relatively straightforward case, but I think the government has already said it's an, even from their point of view, it's a three-month trial. So it's, it, there are 19 murders. There are a lot of facts. There are a lot of documents. From the defense perspective, they don't want it simple. They want it complicated. And it's pretty, pretty clear from the papers that uh, Bulger's lawyer filed yesterday that they intend to present, if not as a formal defense, at least an issue for the, for the jury to have in mind when it decides whether he's guilty or not. And let's face it, in my view, Bulger has very few mm-hmm. cards to play, and this is maybe one of the, the few cards that he has left. Do you have any idea, or would you tell me if you did, <laughs> whether the, uh, the National Office of the FBI knew about these deals? Was this strictly a Boston-level deal, the FBI, with making these, cutting these deals with Whitey Bulger and his associates in order to bring down the La Casa Nostra, the Italian mafia. Was this common across, you know, the United States at, at that time, the 80s, when in 70s and 80s, when they were trying to bring down the Italian mafia? Uh, you know, what, what I can say, Emily, is I, is I think that the oversight over the top echelon program, particularly during this period of time, was very imperfect. And so I don't really know, as I sit here, particularly since I've been out of office mm. for now, you know, over 10 years, you know, what the national office of the FBI knew or didn't know, what did J. Edgar Hoover know or, or didn't know. I just don't know. What I can say is that I think that uh, there were certainly failings at many different levels. doesn't mean that they're either criminal failings or that it provides a defense now, in my view, to Whitey Bulger as he's tried for these 19 murders. But there were some institutional failings 
And part of that is if the national office didn't know, that's a failing, Hmm. that they really needed to have oversight over the activities of individual agents, including the activities of John Conley. It was interesting what Whitey Bulger said through his attorneys a week or so ago about John Conley, the former FBI agent. He was saying that Connolly was not the one who tipped him. He didn't say they didn't have a relationship. He didn't say he wasn't an informant. He said, I didn't get a tip from Connolly. Would that word fly anywhere in trial? Would, would that help John Connolly in any way, shape, or form? Well, you know, <laughs> it, it, I guess it depends on what, how credible you think uh, Mr. Bulger's word is. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it sounds like he's about to admit that he killed these people because if his defense is going to be he had immunity, it sounds like he's going to have to admit he did that. So I, I, what do you think? Well, why, would he, why would he even want to protect him at this point? I, you know, as I said before, there is a proven and, – and Connolly has been found guilty of having been engaged in a corrupt relationship between handler and informant. John Connolly as the handler and and Bulger and Fleming as the informant. Uh, that corrupt relationship was extensive. Uh, it included Connolly's protecting Bulger and Fleming for a significant period of time. And uh, in the view of, of – uh, and there's evidence obviously that John Connolly received gifts and other things of monetary value during that relationship. The, what the incentive would be at this point may be simply to protect somebody who he thought had protected him in the mm-hmm. past. Talking to former U.S. Attorney Don Stern, who was uh, in that office from 1993 to 2001, uh, leading the indictments of James Whitey Bulger and Stephen, the rifleman from Fleming. It just seems to stretch credulity a bit here that the FBI didn't wonder how the Boston office was bringing down people like Raymond Patriarca and, you know, Angelo and that gang without they must have, well, Jerry Angelo. They must have said, well, where are you getting this information from? How, how are you making this happen? I mean, they had to have known on a larger scale that that there were informants. Oh, I think probably at some level, uh, people in the national office, the FBI, knew there were informants. Whether they were aware of the extensive criminal activity of Bulger and Fleming, I just don't know. Hmm. What do you think is going to happen? Well, you know, I mean, this is this is. I'm not surprised that that a motion like this is brought. As a, as, I, as I said, I think Jay is a very talented, ethical. Hmm. Aggressive lawyer um, has probably few cards to play, and this is probably one of them. Um, I my guess is that uh, he will use the additional time. And by the way, I don't begrudge at all uh, the defense's needing for some additional time. I know that the families of the victims desperately want this case to come to trial because Mr. Bulger is what is he eighty two mm-hmm. now at this point. But you know, it's, it's a you know the government has lived with this case for many many years. The prosecutors who are going to try it with the original prosecutors who brought the indictments back in 1995, uh, Brian Kelly and Fred, Fred Wyshak, Jay is relatively and his team are, quote, new to the case. So there's an extensive amount of material for them to go through. Um, I think it's going to be a interesting case. Um, I'm glad to see that after all these years that Mr. Bulger has been brought to justice and that he will face a jury. And, uh, you know, I think there's a Strong case there to convict them. Unfortunately, there won't be any cameras in the courtroom. We got to change that, Don. We've I know. Got to change I know. that. Well, it, you know, there'll be there'll be uh, you know there'll be a lot of media attention. I know, but uh, it's just not the same. <laughs> All yeah, right, I... former U.S. Attorney Don Stern. Always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you, Emily. All right. Up next, we find out why defense attorneys are abuzz. Sixty-one prisoners serving life sentences in Massachusetts have new hope this morning. You're listening to Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. This program is on WGBH thanks to you and Orchard Cove, where their substantial updates are now complete. You can see how the new face of this independent senior community in Canton is transforming residents' lives. You can schedule a tour online at orchardcovelive.org.
and Miller Systems, designing and delivering websites, intranets, and portals on Microsoft SharePoint. Miller Systems, since 1995. Quality user experiences, technology that's right for the job. MillerSystems.com slash SharePoint. And members of the Great Blue Hill Society, whose estate and planned giving arrangements to WGBH create a lasting legacy and ensure public media for generations to come. What will your legacy be? When Italian chefs prepare Italian food in Jakarta or Tokyo or Kiev, they sometimes have to compromise. Uh, many times they ask me to change a recipe, uh, like a white sauce, creamy sauce. I close my eyes and uh, you know, I, I try to adapt. Italian chefs from around the globe take their local adaptations home to Italy for the Pasta World Championship next time on The World. Coming up at 3 here on 89.7 WGBH. It's cool, it's sweet, and it's fun for the whole family. Support WGBH with a gift of just $30, and we'll say thanks with not one, not two, but four tickets to the WGBH Fun Fest, coming to WGBH's Brighton Studios on Saturday, July 14th. There's ice cream from your favorite local vendors, awesome kids' music, there's even a bouncy house. Secure your tickets online at wgbh.org funfest. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, tune into a wide-ranging conversation today at 1 after the Emily Rooney Show on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. Well, the Supreme Court ruled yesterday that juveniles convicted of murder cannot be automatically sentenced to life in prison without parole. That's anyone under the age of 18. The ruling struck down laws in 29 states, including Massachusetts, that impose mandatory life without parole sentences on juvenile murder defendants. That left us with a bunch of questions. We were wondering whether this law is can it be retroactive and will cases be retried? So here to help us answer and sort through those questions are Brian Gutman. He's head of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Juveniles. And Barbara Cabin, Director of Research and Policy at the Children's Law Center. Welcome. Both Welcome. of you. Thank you. Hello. So let's start there. Uh, is is it retroactive? We had this case last week, I'm sure, very prominently featured again today on front page of the Boston Globe. One of the kids in that Nicolae Fomby uh, Davis murder was uh, 16, I think, at the time of the murder. The kid he killed was 14. Would he be – he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole last week. Will he get a new trial? Will it be reconsidered? There won't be a new trial, but the sentencing will have to be reconsidered. The Supreme Court of the United States has now said that that is cruel and unusual punishment. They've basically said that there's a mismatch between the culpability of the juvenile offender and the severity of a mandatory life without parole sentence. And therefore, we will have to go back, and the trial attorney will have to go back into court, and they'll have to deal with the whole sentencing issue. And if you read the sentence, what the Miller Court basically said, they said there must be an opportunity for an individualized sentencing hearing because they said youth status matters. And under current law in Massachusetts, there's no opportunity to take into account the fact that the defendant was, in fact, a juvenile at the time mm-hmm. of the offense. Think it's a good ruling? I think it's a good start. Um, it is a step. It's not the end. We've got uh, a long way to go. But just by saying that you have to do this individualized consideration, mm-hmm. that you have to consider the youthful status, uh, the court has said that you should consider the background of the child, the circumstances of the crime, the sorts of things that currently aren't considered in Massachusetts. When you're imposing a penalty, any penalty, but certainly one as harsh as life in prison without the possibility of parole, you know, sentencing somebody to die behind bars, I think it's very important that there's a consideration that uh, that you're not dealing with just anybody. You're dealing with a child. Yeah. I mean, isn't the, one of the problems here that anytime you start dealing with anything that's mandatory, you get yourself into a box here because this law doesn't prevent somebody from being sentenced to life behind bars without the possibility of parole, but it just eliminates the mandatory aspect of it. That's correct, Emily. Basically, children, we all agree that children must be held accountable for the harm they inflict. But what the court has said is that 
we have to look at who this child was. Mm-hmm. We have to look at their background. We have to look at their capacity for change as well as their lessened culpability. This was a very narrow decision that built incrementally on the prior decisions. In Roper, where they said children cannot be subject to the death penalty, they said that's a legal sentence for adults, but not for kids. And then in the Graham decision, the court basically said you can't sentence a child to life without parole for for non-homicide offenses. And then in this case, they left open, yes, that sentence is a possibility, but we expect it to be very, very rare. And in fact, Emily, you know, it's important for everybody to understand that the United States and Somalia are the only two countries in the world that impose this sentence on children. Well, we have, we're one of the only civilized societies, period, that allows things like the death penalty. So the United States is not in good company there either, you know, with China and Saudi Arabia and others. So we, we have some Byzantine practices here in, in, in the country. But, I mean, one, one of the problems that you get into with this, it's, um, you know, it's the legislature really got into the practice of removing judicial discretion. That's happened in a whole, that's the same thing that's going on with three strikes. And so it's, it's really, a, it's in the legislative branch where these issues bubble up in the first place. Well, but I think it's also important to consider that where these, these laws came about in the late 80s and the early 90s, and the legislature there listened to the social scientists who are saying, we're seeing this rise in crime, we're seeing this rise in juvenile crime. There is a theory of the super predator. Um, and that didn't pan out. It mm. it just didn't pan out. And many of the experts who are yeah, saying, so what is that? What what is the super predator? The super predator was this was this theory that juvenile crime was exploding. Uh, it's, it was going to continue to grow, and that we had to hold juveniles uh, strictly accountable uh, as a deterrent, as a way to control this crime wave that would that would sweep society. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of those who said that this was going to occur, have now come and said, no, we, we know it, it didn't occur. Uh, crime rates are at, I believe, a 40-year low right now. Not um, in Chicago, if you read today's New York Times. 240 well, murders since January 1st. It's up 38 or 40 percent. It's crazy. <laughs> but, that's that is not, but that's not in Massachusetts. It's right not now. in Massachusetts. And, and we do see in jurisdictions, and Illinois has or had juvenile uh, life without parole. Um, it exists in jurisdictions both with and without. Mm-hmm. Uh, we listened to the social scientists in the 1990s saying that we have to put in place these very difficult, strict, one-size-fits-all laws for sentencing. And today the social scientists are saying the opposite, that there should be an, individual, an individualized consideration, that we should be looking at the child, we should be considering both their their past as well as their potential for change and growth. Talking to Brian Gutman, head of the Massachusetts Coalition for the Fair Sentencing of Juveniles, and Barbara Cabin, Director of Research and Policy at the Children's Law Center. Barbara, where do you stand on this whole issue of the juvenile brain? And that's one of the arguments that the lawyer for this kid uh, accused and and convicted in a Nicholas Fami Davis uh, case is, is arguing that you know, he's not fully, he wasn't fully formed at 16. But but then what, what's the cutoff? I mean, 18 is young. 22 is young. 24 is young. I mean, you know, they, they've, they've made this an arbitrary cutoff, you know, 18, under 18. But a lot of these people are behave really irrationally well into their early 20s anyway. That's absolutely correct. What we do know from neuroscience is that, in fact, the brain is not fully mature till somewhere around 25. And we know from psychology that children typically make rash decisions, that they do, they're impulsive, that they have a reckless disregard for the, resp- for the ramifications of their actions. We've known all of that for years, but in the last decade, the social sciences as well as the neuroscience have come together and actually provided a foundation that the courts have looked at and have have provided a legal perspective of how we look at these kids. We know that we have to basically protect society when a child commits a horrific offense. But the question really becomes, how long? Mm. I mean, does it make sense to lock them up for the rest of their lives? Or does it make sense to at some point have an opportunity to review that sentence and say, what has that child accomplished? How have they changed? None of us really want to be held accountable for the things we did when we were 15 and 16. Um, We know we all made 
bad choices somewhere along the line. And so that opportunity for review later in life is really critical. And I think that's what the court was pointing to here, that there should be an opportunity for that child, defendant, now an adult, to be able to document that they're rehabilitated, that they basically have a capacity for change, they took advantage of what was available to them in prison. And in fact, one of the things we have learned from studying the young men, who, and they're all young men, yeah. who served this sentence, is that many of them have been able to take advantage and gotten their GEDs, have gone to college, taken college, not gone to college, but taken college credit courses. And there is an opportunity there uh, for them to make a case that, in fact, they have changed. They're not who they were. You know, one of the uh, judges on arguing the sent, uh, Samuel Alito, he was saying that uh, the court itself was treating juveniles as a single category by lumping together 13-year-olds as well as 17-year-olds. And there's certainly a vast intellectual developmental difference between a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old. So he was arguing against this. And that's why the individualized sentencing hearing is absolutely critical because that means the sentencing judge or jury has to take into account the facts of that case and the facts related to that particular child defendant. And you're right. A 13-year-old is dramatically different than a 17-year-old. And the court has left sentencing discretion with the Mm -hmm. sentencer. Well, Brian, are there any cases in Massachusetts you can think of where a kid committed one of these horrendous murders and then didn't get the mandatory sentence under a judge's discretion? I mean, if there was ever one that would have been applicable, it seems to me it would have been that John Odgren case, the kid convicted of murdering a classmate, James Allenson, in uh, Sudbury Lincoln High School a couple years ago. He had Asperger's syndrome and a, a range of other emotional problems. He was 16 when he committed the murder, 15 or 16, um, and he got the mandatory sentence. He did. You know, the structure that we've had up until now, and this is post-1996, and there was uh, several steps to getting to that point in 1996, but anybody 14 and older who was uh, who is charged with murder in the first or second degree was automatically tried in adult court. No transfer proceeding to get them into adult court. No opportunity to remove them back to juvenile court. And if convicted of first degree, they were automatically sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Now, there's always the possibility of plea bargains. There's always the possibility that they may have been charged with some other crime. But we do have 61 people in Massachusetts prisons who were, uh, who were charged for a crime that was committed prior to their 18th birthday. And we have, we have men now in their 40s who are sitting in prison for one terrible act that was committed when they were a kid. Mm-hmm. I know. I I make this argument myself. I look at that guy, Fernandez, the 18-year-old on the front page of today's paper who murdered that 14-year-old kid. And I have the same reaction to him. On the other hand, I also look at the father of Nicholas Fomby Davis. I say, he's saying the kid knew fully well what he was doing. And a 16-year-old knows that if you pull out a gun and you aim it at somebody's head and you pull the trigger, you're going to kill somebody and that's not the right thing to do. Well, it's important to distinguish what this is from what this isn't. First of all, nobody is saying that most kids don't know right from wrong. This is about a level of culpability. A child who doesn't know right from wrong, the jury has the opportunity to consider that. Uh, We're talking about the proportionality. Um, Nobody is suggesting that we open prison doors today. Mm -hmm. Nobody is suggesting that anyone is guaranteed release under this, and no one is suggesting that there's – that. Currently, there is not in Massachusetts the possibility of life without parole for a juvenile. What we're saying is that when you're looking at somebody who committed a crime when they were 16 in that case or someone who was 15, you can't pass final judgment. You don't know who that person will become or who they may become. Could you Uh, say that about almost any individual after they've committed a crime? I think that there's certainly a difference between somebody who's 15 and somebody who's 50, both at the commission of the crime and in sentencing them. Mm-hmm. The The court over the years has softened their position dramatically on juveniles. In 2005, they eliminated the death penalty for juveniles. I remember there was a case in Texas, I believe it was, there was a kid accused of or convicted of murder who was pending the death penalty. And then in 2010, they eliminated life without parole for crimes that did not involve killing. So so that was, you know, a big 
lift. I mean, imagine life without parole for committing some horrendous card where somebody didn't die. So in a sense, this ruling was not a surprise, right? No, it was a very logical extension of the decisions that the court had made, as you, as you indicated, in 2005 in the Roper decision where they said juveniles could not be put to death, and then in 2010 in Graham. And they have basically looked at the literature in terms of the developmental literature as well as looked at the legal principles. This decision in Miller was a very carefully considered, very narrow decision. And they looked at the fact, well, when you're, when you're possibly sentencing someone to die in prison, well, that's akin to the death penalty cases. And in the death penalty cases, there was always an individualized sentencing hearing. Basically, right. that allowed you to put into, into play any mitigating factor so that that sentence would be a very uh, carefully considered sentence. A mandatory sentence leaves no one discretion to take anything into account. And particularly with juveniles, what they said, what the Supreme Court has said in a progressive way, is that youth status matters, and we have to have an opportunity to take into account the lesson culpability of the kid. And the lesson culpability is really tied to their development, that the fact that they haven't matured yet and that they're in the process of becoming on so many different levels. And then it also has to take into account their capacity for change. And that's a harder one because that, you know, prospectively, how do you decide? Right. And But in the case of the people we have serving the sentence, we will be able to take a retrospective look to say, I'm what sure, have you done? I'm sure you've also studied this, Brian, but it seems like, I mean, prosecutors go for the maximum. They go for first degree. I, I refer once again to the John Ogden cases. I recall they, they had the option, and so did the jury, of going for manslaughter. If, the, if it had been manslaughter, he wouldn't be in the situation where he's f- facing currently life in prison without, without parole. I mean, so prosecutors don't take juvenile status into consideration when they, when they go for the ultimate in terms of trial. Well, I, I think that that's often the case, but I'm not going to speak for prosecutors. Uh, they can certainly speak for themselves. No, I know, but I'm making the point. But yeah. uh, yes, there there is there's some level of discretion. Uh, but that's they much, could they could they could back off. That's Taking also much different though than having age. a formal legal process yeah. of uh, holding juveniles accountable as juveniles. And uh, at least since '96, we haven't had that in Massachusetts. We mm-hmm. haven't had the possibility of a formal legal process. And the court also did address. Uh, both the transfers as well as there are some jurisdictions where prosecutors have the discretion to file charges in juvenile court or adult court. And uh, the court says very clearly that that in itself isn't enough to say that there's this individualized determination to mm-hmm. take youth into account, um, to consider the broken home or the broken neighborhood, the individual circumstances of the offense. You know, a lot of these laws get made on the spur of the moment, prompted by some hideous, heinous case. And, of course, the one in Massachusetts was based on that Eddie O'Brien case, which I remember well. I was uh, in local news at the time here in Massachusetts. And the, the, the guy, I think he was 14, he was quite young, killed his next-door neighbor. It was an awful case, you know, stabbed this woman like 140 times. He had some sort of obsession with her. Um, but it was right after that, that first of all, that prompted uh, a law, change in law about the status of trying juveniles as adults. He gets tried as an adult, and then they change the law so he gets he can get the maximum sentence. And how do you get away from that mindset? It's true of almost every law that I can think of criminal that's, that's prompt, been prompted here in Massachusetts by a single case. There's an old adage in law that said bad cases make bad law. And unfortunately, you know, people react and and people have a right to be horrified when something like that happens. Uh, But sometimes we have to take a step back. And there's absolutely no doubt that Eddie O'Brien's case did result in a change of law. In actual fact, right before that, we had a a short period of time from about 91 to 96 when, in fact, a juvenile could be retained in the the juvenile court system and they could be sentenced to uh, 20 years for a crime of murder, and they would be eligible for parole for after 15 years. And we do have instances of individuals who s- served that sentence, who did their time, who used their time in jail productively and came out with a skill set and are now functioning and contributing to society. So we do have the other example as well. Hmm. All right. Thank you both for being with us today. Brian Gutman, Barbara Cabin, thank you so much. Thank Interesting you. discussion. Welcome. 
All right. Up next, as America awaits the Supreme Court's decision on Obama's health care law, we go inside the health care crisis that nobody is talking about. You're listening to Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Funding for our programs comes from you. And Babson College, redefining entrepreneurship because today's opportunities and definitions are not where or what you may think. You can join the conversation online at define.babson.edu. And Dover Rug and Home. GBH has proven its metal over the years with me. Mahmoud Jaffrey, CEO. Uh, not only their credibility and the good work that they do, But as an underwriter, we feel that we share the mission statement. We feel that what we stand for, what our corporate philosophies are, is shared by GBH. To learn more, visit wgbh.org slash sponsorship. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, from the bus stop to the boardroom, we'll bring you a wide-ranging conversation that taps into the talk of your town. We want to hear from you, too. Call in and become a part of the conversation. On the Callie Crossley Show, radio is a two-way street. That's today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Every day, I depend on WGBH to keep me informed. The big news in Egypt today is of a completely different sort. To ask questions? Who would be a good Taliban? Introduce me to new things. This week, we're looking at emerging cultural voices in Africa. It's my go-to. Reliable. Dependable. Most trusted source. So, yes, of course, absolutely. Without hesitation. I support WGBH, and that? That makes me responsible. That makes me responsible. That makes me responsible for radio I depend on. This is Marketplace from APM. I'm Kai Rizdal. Marketplace is coming to Boston Public Radio. Wait, what? Yep, that's right. Starting Monday, July 2nd. Here at First in Boston at 6. Here on 89.7 WGBH. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, more than 100 million Americans don't go to the dentist because they can't afford it. And some of them even have dental insurance. WGBH's Frontline and the Center for Public Integrity combined resources to look into what's happening to people in dire need of dental care, especially children. What happens when dentists refuse to see patients on Medicaid? And they discover dental warehouses where kids receive excessive treatments in order to boost the bottom line. I'm joined here on the telephone by Frontline correspondent Miles O'Brien and Frontline producer Jill Rosenbaum. Welcome to both of you. Good to be with you. Hey, Miles. Good to see you again. Hear, hear from you again. Back in you, old Boston like boy, that. you guys don't remember. Um, I should mention you, Frontline is on uh, Dollars and Dents is, is on tonight at 10 on WGBH. I have to tell you, too, my toes were curling in my shoes watching this. I mean, it's painful. I mean, we all, just the, the, a minor dental problem, a chipped tooth, a cavity, you know, a, you know discomfort from a, a root canal. You know, you're at the dentist in a flash. And I can't, some of these people that you profiled go weeks, months, years, decades. They've never seen a dentist. You, you can't even imagine how how they can bear it. One, that one woman who said she hadn't eaten in weeks, and she looked at she hadn't eaten in weeks because her <clears throat> teeth were so awful. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know what to say as a question, just to comment on that, just talking to the people who were living that kind of pain. Go ahead, Miles. <laughs> well, what do they yeah, say? I, mean, I, I got to say, I'm reliving my time with Vanessa Nations, who you're referring to, who uh, when, we, when we met her was in such a dark, place in her life, and when you think of the things that the absence of her teeth meant to her, uh, a huge financial problem, because 
Every time she had a toothache, she had to go to the emergency room and get uh, basically antibiotics and some painkillers, and they sent her out the door saying, go see a dentist. You know, if you're poor in this country and you break a leg and you go to an emergency room, you will, you will get treated. If you have tooth problems, you're out of luck. And that was what happened with Vanessa. And over time, the teeth got worse and worse, uh. and the debts piled up, and she lost her job, and she was uh, unable, unwilling to get married like she wanted to. Uh, she was headed down a, a real vortex to a very dark place, and were it not for charity, uh, would still be there. So the question that we have to all consider here is, is charity enough? When you have 100 million people without this safety net, without any way of, of getting to a dentist as a practical matter, uh, charity is not going to make a big enough dent. Well, Jill, how, how did it ever come to be? that dental care was separated from health care. Why do we treat them? Why do we have a different card for dentists and, and a different card for uh, health care? I don't understand that. It's all the same. Well, you know, this is something that I was really mystified by when I first started reporting this project. You know, dentistry in the old days, it was kind of like barber shops, you know, in the Wild West, and, and it, it wasn't considered sort of something medical, you know, because uh, in the early days, dentists could pretty much just pull out your tooth. And then I think what's happened, especially over the last, you know, 20 years or so, people have come to realize that there's a big connection between the body and the mouth that, that, you know, if you get an infection in your mouth, it actually can spread throughout your body. You know, there've been a couple of cases of people in the last five years who've died when dental infections have spread, you know, to their brain or, or there's connection between diabetes and periodontal disease, but none of that was known as dentistry was evolving as a practice. And so um, it just never was considered medical. And the the very first dental school was actually at the University of Maryland, and they have a museum there. It's the Museum of Dentistry. But, you know, it just evolved as a separate profession. You wonder why that hasn't changed. Well, well, Miles, um, well, a lot of the people you talk to, I mean, dentists, they, they admit, look, there's no money in Medicaid. So they, they, they turn people away. They just say, look, I, I, I've got a full practice. I don't, I don't need your, you know, it's not even a subsidy. You're, you're, less, you, you're not going to pay for the services I'm treating you for. I mean, can you blame them? No, you can't. I mean, you're a dentist. You graduate from dental school. You've got a mound of debt to pay off. Where are you going to set up your practice and how are you going to do business? They are, after all, in a business. And when you're in a state like Florida, which pays about 20 cents on the dollar for uh, you know, the typical procedure in a dental office that a dentist would get from a, a paying customer, there's no incentive for that dentist to see a lot of Medicaid uh, patients. If the dentist opened uh, his or her doors that way, he'd be out of business. Uh, so that's it was what, what some states have done. Have, they have seen this. They have streamlined the paperwork, which is another issue as well. They've raised the Medicaid reimbursement. The unintended consequence of all of this is that in these states where the Medicaid pot is a little sweeter, these big corporate yeah. firms have come in, seen an opportunity, and are filling the need. But the question is, are they going too far? Are they being too aggressive in pushing care that may or may not be warranted. Yeah, I was fascinated by that. Um, these cool smiles, uh, sort of dentistry warehouses. I mean, it, it's kind of a mixed bag because they're definitely helping those kids. Now, your question was, and some of the people you, you talked to said, yeah, maybe, but they're also doing things that maybe not don't putting caps on children, doing things that maybe is excessive in order to up the ante in a sense, get more out of Medicaid because they have to meet a bottom line. So they're just and, and and they had they had it all computerized. These, you know the statistics on how many people they were seeing, and you had one woman who used to work there saying that they had a a monetary uh, push line. You know they had to make fifteen thousand dollars a day or twenty thousand dollars a day, whatever. Just but once again, I had sort of mixed feelings about these outfits because they said, well, at least people are getting the treatment. You know, I think well, this it is, it is one it of the great. Go ahead, either Go one. Go ahead, Joe. Oh, well, what I was just going to say is that I think this is a really big issue for our country. Medicaid is a state-by-state program, so every state you know, funds it at a different level. And there are some states, like Florida, where nobody's treating kids because it just simply doesn't pay. And, you know, I think you're absolutely right that care is better than no care. Um, but the question of, you know, how do we really take care of everyone 
Um, there's nothing, like Miles said earlier, that's the equivalent of the emergency room. There is no system for making sure that people in this country can get access to the dentist. Did you guys go state by state? Did you look at uh, how, for instance, Massachusetts fares compared to other states? I mean, we do, after all, have universal health coverage here in this state. Does that matter when it comes to dentistry? Massachusetts is in better shape than most states. We're actually going to post on our website, along with the program tonight, a chart that shows you how all the different states rank in terms of their Medicaid payments. But Massachusetts is definitely one of the better ones. Talking to Jill Rosenbaum, who's a frontline producer, and Miles O'Brien, frontline correspondent. Uh, on the new uh, frontline Dollars and Dentists airs tonight at 10 p.m. on WGBH. I warn you, it is tough to watch, but it's riveting at the same time because you can really, uh, you know, I- identify with these people and what they're going through and not having any money to, you know, have a tooth pulled. And then one of the things that struck me, Miles, was the extremes to which people were willing to go. The the woman that you profiled, Vanessa, I think, had all of her teeth pulled out. Now, she was going to eventually end up getting uh, dentures. But, I mean, that that's really, you know, if they go there with a toothache or, you know, an infection or something, they just they, these these outfits that you profiled, you know, these makeshift charity dental operations, they can't do, you know, anesthesia. They can't do all these dramatic. They can't make a cap right on the spot. Really, what they do is they're providing these people relief, right? Yeah, it's you know it's tantamount to a mass unit, you know. And yeah. here we are, you know, Vanessa, who drove eight hours from oh. Washington D.C. to be to go to Grundy, Virginia, and line up with thousands of thousands. people, thousands of people who are just you know in pain. Every single one of them in pain with a toothache of some form or another. And and you know these dentists give them credit. They they took time out of their lives to stage this you know essentially a mission trip to Appalachia to try to take care of these people's teeth. But when you see that line, that is the problem in a nutshell. That's obviously the tip of the iceberg. But why the fact that Vanessa, in desperation, had to get in a car with Mm. her mother and drive eight hours to rely on charity to be relieved of pain, there's something wrong if if that's happening in this country. Was there any kind of an education program that goes kind of hand-in-hand with this? I can remember reading... Or maybe it was sixty minutes. That that story a couple of years ago about Mountain Dew, <laughs> and the fact that you know something like eighty percent of the kids in certain uh, Appalachian area, West Virginia, had completely rotten teeth because of drinking Mountain Dew. I mean, so is there an educational yeah. component? Well, um, you know, it, 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 there's a whole other hour to be done on on the the sugary drinks and our diet and the impact on on you know tooth decay. The truth is there there is a raging epidemic of tooth decay right now in this country. It's the biggest problem, the biggest chronic issue facing children above asthma. And a lot of this has to do with the sugary drinks that the kids are given, oftentimes right before they go to bed. And and you can imagine what that does to their teeth. That You know, we, we wanted to focus a little bit on how care is care connects or doesn't connect with this constituency. I think there's a lot of things we need to think about on how uh, we allow our children to be drinking these sugary drinks. Did either of you... uh, Emily, yeah, there is about to be a massive ad campaign, though, on um, how to take care of your teeth. And uh, I think people will be seeing it within the next couple of months, billboards and commercials and stuff like that. Who's who's producing that? um, It's the Ad Council. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's important, um, you know, to recognize it. And and v- Vanessa talks about it herself that there is some culpability that people have in terms of how bad their teeth get. There are parts of this country where people just are not in the habit of going to the dentist until they have a toothache. By which point, of course, you know the um, infection has set in. And so, just getting people to value preventive care, especially people who are paying out of pocket. That's a big issue that I think if, if you know, those people had access could prevent some of these cavities from forming in the first place. Do you think it was impossible at this stage of the game for the Affordable Care Act or any uh, health care proposal to include dentistry? I mean, why is it so well, Byzantine? The, the Affordable Care Act actually does have a provision that would require private insurers of children to give dental care as well as physical care, you know, because right now they are not required to do that. But as far as adults are concerned, this is a huge conundrum because neither Medicaid nor Medicare 
for adults really has much in the way of dental. And you're talking about a massive amount of money, and where would that come from? Hmm. Did did you miles come? Oh, but with, having said yeah. that, you know the the cost of the cost of treating the way that we are treating these individuals uh, in emergency rooms is, yeah. is staggering. So you know you really have to you have to look at the bottom line and look at it from uh, you know thirty seven thousand feet. Did did you come away with a judgment at all, Miles? After all the time you spent in those cool smiles clinics or you, Jill, about whether it was worth the trade off that maybe they were performing these excessive procedures in order to, you know, make a buck. But on the other hand, at least they were providing it. I mean, did did, did, did you form a judgment about it? I don't think really know, that's he, our he, place. Well, no, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's our place to do, do it, perform judgments. But I will say this. I do think that when, when there is a profit motive injected uh, in, in, a, in a big corporate entity trying to please investors on Wall Street, there is inevitably going to be pressure to keep revenue flowing in. We went to Alabama, and we, we saw there's a, there's a, a chain of uh, dental operations there that is a nonprofit. They see in excess of 300,000 kids a year, Medicaid kids, and the dentists there, they're not paid on bonuses. They get a salary, and they get the same amount of money whether they see one kid or 10 kids a day, and it seems to be working. And it, this this nonprofit model may be something we should be looking at nationwide. Hmm. It's just you know mind boggling that the health insurance doesn't cover this Jill like they do. I mean, why would they separate the mouth? I mean, ophthalmology is covered. You know, your ears are covered. All the senses except except your teeth. Well, yeah, I think part of this goes back to that original idea of the mouth not really having a connection to your physical health. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I'm no, I'm serious. And yeah. also, for example, when Medicare was being started, it was originally designed to prevent senior citizens from going bankrupt from catastrophic health problems. And so the tooth wasn't seen as something that could cause a catastrophic health problem. And it just kind of never changed. Hmm. That's an amazing story. All right. So Frontline is on tonight. Dollars and Dentists that airs tonight at 10 o'clock on WGBH. Thanks to you, Miles O'Brien, Jill Rosenbaum. Emily, you're most welcome. (laughs) Okay. Bye-bye. Good to talk to you again. All right. That is going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. Stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next. She will explore the surprisingly intelligent and the emotional complexity of the octopus. You got to hear that. And tonight, my television show, Greater Boston, Jeff Himmelman is here with his personal portrait of Ben Bradley. He, of course, is the former editor of the Washington Post. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio on the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.